Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. I'm Julie Douglas. And you know, Julie, if we, we travel back in time here, go back to early 1950s, Las Vegas, okay. Nevada. Okay. Totally different world, of course. All right. I'm getting my martini stirred right now. Yeah. 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 Martinis, uh, mobsters run in the place uh you know it's the, the the age of you know of uh of black suits and smoking everywhere and uh uh and and you know everybody was caught up in this uh this cold war uh feeling that right it's, it's, you know the, the arms race the arms race it's post-world war ii u.s is a big dog and and it's uh and it's up against some pretty stiff competition uh on the other side of the globe and um uh, and so, you know, war of ideologies, but also, you know, lots of good times in casinos, drinking martinis and smoking nonstop. Um, and, and what would you add to that experience just to make it even more fantastic? Well, basically, you throw the ultimate party. I mean, you've got the mafia here, so yeah. we got to go high. we got to go big. Yeah. Ultimate party thrown by the mafia mm-hmm. with all of your, uh, you know. Uh, you know, whatever kind of music they had back in the day. I don't know. There wasn't electronic. Then, I don't know. So. I just see like awkward, like um, shifting to the right and left yeah. with the hips, you know? <laughs> yeah, that that kind of dancing. Oh, yeah, I don't know. There, I'm sure there's a name for that. Yeah, early early 1950s stuff. But you're staying up all night, staying up all night, partying, doing that weird dance, drinking um, dr- drinking those weird drinks, yeah, smoking nonstop. And then right around dawn, an atomic weapon goes off on the horizon. For your pleasure. For your pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. A, a nuclear explosion and everybody, you know, cheers, you know, USA chant, drink a little more, smoke a little more, party a little more. And then I guess you have, you, know, you have brunch and then you go home and go to sleep. This well, is not fiction. This, this, yeah. this was happening for yeah. 12 years. For 12 years and something in the neighborhood of, uh, oh, I mean, th- these parties ended, uh, you know, after a while, but, uh, you know, in the, uh, between 1951 and 1992, um, 1,021 nuclear detonations took place at the Nevada test site. Yeah. So a lot of uh, these are, again, th- these are nuclear weapons. These are atomic bombs, the most powerful and dreaded uh, weapon that we've uh, been able to come up with yet. And, you know, we previously dropped them to horrific results. Um uh, in Japan on uh, Hiroshima and uh, Nagasaki and that right. was a like a 13 kiloton and a 20 kiloton bomb but then though like the the like some of the first ones we were dropping in La- in uh, just outside of Las Vegas uh at the Nevada proving grounds were 31 kiloton b- bombs right and 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 you wonder if anybody said hmm i wonder if this is a good idea well, apparently you had some people that were like, I don't know if we should, should maybe, maybe, is this a good idea? I don't, but then, but yeah. then the government was like, uh, well, we're doing it in two weeks, so make up your mind. Uh, and know that it's an extremely patriotic thing for us to do. It's perfectly safe. And, uh, you know, so just, you know, drink your martini- martinis and keep smoking those cigarettes right. that aren't going to kill you. And then I imagine them murmuring the side effects, like, side effects include nausea, <laughs> vomiting. Headaches, you know, and so on and so forth. So there, yeah. So people are, you know, having their martinis and going. Well, okay, maybe it's not such a bad idea. It will bring a lot of money, yeah, into the area, and we really need it. And the parties actually remind me. Um, I've, I've never been to one of these because I'm not that cool. But uh, like in places like Ibiza, they have like these parties where people party all night somehow, um, and uh, perhaps through unnatural means. And then when the sun comes up, 
like the DJ does like a like a special mix mm-hmm. uh, so that his mix corresponds with the rising of the sun. Of course, they didn't have DJs back then, so uh, they right. weren't able to really get that that the same effect with uh, to correspond with the uh, detonation. I'm sure Frank Sinatra probably did some little ditty. DJ Frank Sinatra, yeah, yeah, back, yeah. In, back in the old days. Um, but but this was just part of it. like like Vegas was crazy with it. Like Vegas was ready to run with anything that would come along that they could market. So they're like, uh, they're like, uh, oh, atomic bomb. Well, we're the atomic city. We, and, you know, they, yep. the atomic cocktail became big, which according to Esquire magazine is, uh, one and a half ounces of vodka, one and a half ounces of brandy, a teaspoon of sherry, and one and a half ounces of dry champagne. My favorite, um, was a still from that time of Miss Atomic USA. Yeah. I believe. And she's, uh, just imagine an, an atomic plume. Yeah, the mushroom cloud. The mushroom cloud. That is the actual like her her outfit, right? <laughs> and it almost looks like it's a sandwich board, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to say exactly what it is. Um, but she she's made to look naked behind this atomic plume, and she's you know this um, blonde with this big bouffant. Out in the desert with clouds behind her, it's pretty great. And I think the showgirls would have headdresses that look like mushroom clouds. Yeah. Um, the Las Vegas Chamber of Commerce issued a calendar for tourists uh, with the scheduled detonation times and the best places to view them. Right. Yeah. For this 12 years, for, right? Yeah, for 12 years. People would, uh, like the Desert Inn marketed its Sky Room as the perfect place to, uh, you know, guzzle down some martinis and, and uh, smoke and watch a bomb light up the horizon. Uh, <laughs> um and yeah, but of course the good times had to end, didn't they? Because, it, you know, people in northeastern Nevada and southern Utah began complaining that their pets and their livestock were suffering from beta particle burns. This is from a PBS uh, documentary about the, the strange side of Las Vegas. And they suffered other ailments. So by 1963, the limited test ban was in effect, and effectively that just shut down all above-ground tests. Which yeah. it was not a bad thing to do. As as exciting as these um, little parties were, it's sort of horrific now. Thinking back now, knowing what we know. Yeah, it's kind of like if you if you are or if you know somebody who's ever had like that crazy boyfriend or girlfriend, and at the time they're like, "This person's awesome. I want to spend the rest of my life with this person." <laughs> and then and then later they look and back. Then you and turn twenty five. Yeah. <laughs> and then they look back and they're like, "Wow, that person was crazy. What was I thinking? That was that was that was dumb." Mm-hmm. And you know, so you know, hindsight is sort of twenty twenty. So you know, it's easy to look back now and say, "Wow, these people were stupid throwing parties and uh, watching a, a nuclear weapon light up the horizon." Right. But but like I say, they were caught up in in, in patriotism. They didn't know what. The effects were, uh, right. and I guess they didn't, you know, really uh, heed the whole uh, "now I am become death, the destroyer of world" type thing. You know, they. Uh, <laughs> no, it was this shiny atomic age, right? Yeah. I mean, it was it was just all new and exciting. Yeah. Uh, new frontier, but you know, it, there's there's the dark side, of course. Yes. So. Uh, so yeah, the, here's where the music goes. Right. Yeah. That's the record scratching. Another DJ reference. Nice. Yeah. Thanks. This is, uh, we're of course talking about nuclear fallout. Yeah. And, um, I think everyone is at least familiar with the idea of nuclear fallout in the, in the sense that it's, it's just become part of our, our language. And you talk about the fallout of something, about the uncomfortable or terrible, um, Circumstances that uh, can occur after an event has transpired, right? And of course, especially after Japan, um, mm-hmm. which is those, it's been a horrific event, um, yeah. and it's been really heartbreaking. Um, 
and it's sad, but it's it's interesting to look at Fallout and see how that's affected people, and also to try to understand um, Japan in the context of Chernobyl, right? And see if we've learned anything. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we should probably talk a little bit about Fallout, exactly what it is and what that mushroom cloud is doing. Yeah. So, yeah, this is what happens in a nuclear explosion. Uh, just very briefly, you have a certain about amount of nuclear mass, and we transfer that nuclear mass into energy. Right. Uh, right? So you have an explosion, an enormous fireball, and inside that fireball, everything's vaporized. And this fireball rises rapidly, uh, and it it ends up pulling in soil and water, and then it expands and cools and loses buoyancy. And uh, the, the radioactive debris and soil and all the stuff uh, that's initially swept upwards by the explosion then disperses with the wind. Um, so you get this fallout, which is a fallout is basically microscopic particles um, in the air uh, that end up being deposited on the ground or on buildings or on, you know, just everywhere. And uh, and they're radioactive. So think of like a like you see footage of like a volcanic uh, eruption yeah, yeah, where everything is that. coated in ash. Yeah. And that's pretty destructive. But imagine if the ash in this case is radioactive. And when I mean radioactive, like it doesn't even need to touch you uh, to be harmful. Right. Um, but we'll get to that in just a second. Um, so you have this mushroom cloud, radioactive um, um, particles rising up. And the, the as the cloud reaches its stabilization height, it moves downwind. And, uh, and you have, the thing is you don't just have one wind speed or one, you know, direction. It varies with altitude. So you'll see, you'll look at, the, there's some interesting charts out there that, that show, um, um, how n- nuclear fallout has moved, say, just from, uh, from some of these test detonations mm-hmm. in Nevada. And, uh, uh, one in particular I was looking at looked at, uh, the fallout from a 1953 43 kiloton test, um, of a um, bomb by the name of Simon in Nevada. And uh, depending on the altitude, like the course was drastically different. Like um, the particles that made it up to eighteen thousand feet, they cut through New Mexico and Texas, and then shot north through Arkansas, as, as uh, far north as Pennsylvania. Uh, at thirty thousand uh, feet, it uh, cut through through the top of New Mexico. This is just this path of you know radioactive materials traveling across country. Yeah. Then uh, then it uh, went down through Texas, southern Louisiana, middle Florida. But then at forty thousand. It uh, goes more or less straight through Texas, and then shoots north on a tour of New England uh, on up into Canada. So, and, and then if it gets high enough, you get into the um, into the, uh, the the stratosphere, and uh, you have global fallout where it can these particles can, can pretty much go all over the globe. Yeah, yeah, and that's, I think that's probably important to talk about that how you've got localized fallout, right? Mm-hmm. Which is you know, by far the most dangerous. Yeah, we're talking. This is local fallout is within fifty to five hundred uh, kilometers from uh, ground zero. That's between thirty-one miles and three hundred and ten miles. That's where all the large particles are going to come down. Is mm-hmm. that correct? And yes. then you've got regional fallout. Right, and that's five hundred to three thousand kilometers. Okay, and then you've got the global, which you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, and that's more than three thousand kilometers, or more than. Uh, uh, 1,864 miles. Yeah. And the CBTB, that is the Comprehensive Nuclear Test um, Treaty, they have a global network of air samples de- which detect traces of radiation. 
and they've actually detected uh, traces from the Fukushima radioactive fallout as far afield as Sacramento. And of yeah. course, that's that's no reason for everybody to get up in arms and you know start taking iodine um, because really these are just minute traces. But yeah, you this, know, it basically plays like these sensors are used to say find out if somebody's doing a, a nuclear test somewhere in the world. Right. Because that's the thing, you can't really have a secret nuclear test because. The world is going to notice because it's that kind of activity is going to affect global radioactive levels. Yeah. Yeah. Which again just drives home how destructive and irresponsible, uh, these weapons are. Well, I mean, you can get into issues of, of nuclear power. Is it clean? Is it dangerous? Um, uh, et cetera. But, but when it comes down to nuclear weapons, it's pretty, I think it's pretty cut and dry. Well, especially if you think about the storehouses of enriched uranium, particularly in the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. um, and the amount of thefts that we know have gone on yeah. also with plutonium. Uh, I mean, this is, there are many other issues that spiral out from this. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's dangerous stuff at any level, uh, and right. hard to keep, keep tabs on. Um, uh, but we should probably talk about some of the more specific dangers of fallout. Um, and actually, like, what is an acceptable amount of radiation? Which, which I feel like I cannot get a firm answer on. Yeah, well, let's let's get into this uh, right after a quick break. This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of tomorrow. And we're back. Hello. So, what is an acceptable amount of radiation? Well, I mean, it's kind of a moving target. The jury's definitely still out. Um, there's a mathematical model known as the linear non-threshold dose response model, LNT mm-hmm. model for short, that helps agencies set levels of acceptable radiation level. Um, so, for example, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission sets an acceptable level at 100 millirem a year. And just to put that into context, uh, there are actual cities where the background radiation level is really high, like Denver, and those citizens are exposed to 50 millirems a year. Whoa. And as a side note, though, the, the rate of cancer is pretty low there. So oh. that's something to consider. Um, but, um, you know, the average level of natural background radiation in the United States is about 350 millirem a year. So mm-hmm. that's, that's everything in concert. So that's if you take a transatlantic flight, you're going to be exposed to 35 millirem. If you, uh, get a full body scan, you're going to have one or two millirems. So that, you know, accumulatively, they're looking at more like 350 millirem. So in theory, we're all getting zapped way too much with radiation. But you say that, and that's just one agency's um, thoughts on it, or you know that's that's what they think is acceptable. You can go to a multitude of agencies in a multitude of countries, and everybody has a different goal, uh, or, or, or even moving the goalposts right now because they're not really sure um, if radiation is that bad at low dosages. Mm-hmm. So that's why I, that I get a little bit frustrated because I don't feel like there's, yeah. <laughs> I still don't feel like people have a good grasp of, of what radiation means. And Chernobyl, obviously there were a lot of horrible things that went on in Chernobyl. One of the, the biggest problems we've had long term is that there was no one foundation that got together and said, let's study this in earnest. Right. The results of Chernobyl. So while we know that there were 6,000 cases of thyroid cancer as a result of fallout from there and exposure um, to to irradiated um, iodine, 
we don't really know fully, you know, the 600,000 inhabitants around there, how that uh, actually affected their lives because nobody really followed up on it. Yeah, just to, to, to touch base on how this radiation ends up affecting the body, yeah. how the particles in uh, nuclear fallout end up harming people. Uh, there are two ways that it enters the body, through external and internal means. Right? Yeah. External, this mainly means, like, like I said, um, the particles come down, they're laying everywhere, and they're emitting radiation. So they, you end up absorbing it because it's emitted from the particles. And this is why um, like shielding of buildings uh, becomes important, uh, the idea of remaining indoors in the event of uh, uh, a, a nuclear detonation. Underground bunker, if right, you can. Right, yeah, yeah. because uh, the particles are emitting this radiation, and if you get if something is between you and the particle, then, well, that's going to help. Mm-hmm. But then there's internal, and this is when you're inhaling the particles or you're absorbing it through intact or injured skin. Or, and this, this is a big one, you're consuming it uh, through contaminated foods. And this can be as simple as, all right, I eat a carrot, and the carrot has particles of, uh, of radioactive pot- particles on it from the mm-hmm. fallout. Or I eat, um, I don't know, I eat the rabbit that ate the, uh, the carrot. Right. See, it ends up uh, impacting the entire food chain of which we are a part. Um, it ends up, it gets involved in like dairy too. I mean, there's just, you know, because if you drink the milk that came from the cow that ate the grass that the fallout fell on, right? then you're, you're going to have some possible health uh, problems there. Yeah. And, um, you should also, again, talk about Chernobyl. Uh, when that happened, uh, when the fallout from that happened, the, the government actually didn't say to its citizens, quit eating, uh, contaminated food or telling them it's contaminated or, or telling them not to drink the water. Um, so again, this is another reason why people were exposed to it so readily. And all that we know in Japan that, uh, they warned the citizens to quit eating and, and drinking, uh, water sources there. But I wanted to talk a little bit about two volatile elements, cassium-137 mm-hmm. and iodine-131. Those, uh, we know bubbled off the damaged fuel in Japan. And iodine is rapidly absorbed by the thyroid, and it leaves uh, only as it decays radioactively with a half-life of eight days, while calcium is absorbed by muscles where its half-life of 30 years means that it remains until it's excreted by the body. So it takes uh, between 10 and 100 days to excrete half of what has been consumed. So... That's why these these two things are problematic because they're they're absorbed very easily by the body. Um, now we know that Japan's fallout near Chernobyl's levels, but again, we know that the there's a big difference here because Japan took you know some precautions in warning their citizens and also giving them iodine. And right. the whole reason that you would give someone iodine is that. Uh, if you were to take all that iodine, your body would absorb that and then, in theory, absorb less of that irradiated yeah. iodine. And then, your, you know, your thyroid wouldn't be stuck there with a bunch of uh, irradiated It would be like eating uh, like eating eating a healthy dinner before going to uh, the free tour of the Twinkie factory. <laughs> That's where it's right. like, oh, I'm full up. Uh, you know, I couldn't possibly eat eight free Twinkies. I'd probably just eat one. I'll just have one yeah. bite of the Twinkie. Yeah, yeah. It's the, the Twinkie analogy. Uh, so that's that's what we know about some of the fallout and how it affects you. And of course, uh, we know that thyroid cancer is is a big one that develops mm-hmm. as a result of exposure. And we should probably talk just a little bit about uh, environmental fluid dynamics. Don't turn off the podcast; it's not really scary. That and we're going to call it EDF, EDF, just to make it a little bit more edgy. It sounds like it a, sounds about EDF. I, well, it doesn't sound edgy to me as much as it sounds like uh, some sort of like um, digestion disorder. Like, uh, he's got, uh, 
EDF. Thinking, also, it wouldn't be EDF. It would be EFD. Ooh. EFD. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 That's all right. Well, uh, well, I like, well, EFD. No. Acronyms are not my strong point. I know, yeah. Let's talk about the fluid dynamics <laughs> of fallout. All right. So uh, fluid dynamics is basically about how fluids move, how the air moves, how the water moves. And these are complex systems. Uh, it, if, you, uh, if you've ever looked at how the weather wor- works, um, and we have a really cool article on the, the site, how weather works. You wrote works. that, right? I, yeah. I wrote that, yeah. which, I mean, uh, it's cool because, <laughs> I, you know, I, I wrote it, so it's cool, but it's also, I feel it's like cool it's cool because it's good. Yeah, it's, it's a good article, I feel like. Yeah. Uh, but. Yeah, the weather is a complex system, a very chaotic system. Right. Um, the, the whole idea of like the, the butterfly effect comes out and, uh, and, uh, and chaos theory comes out of mm-hmm. studying the weather and realizing that it, how difficult it is to, uh, to predict what it's going to do, even with complicated mathematical models. Um, I mean, and that's why you, the, the farther off a, a, uh, a weather forecast, the less you can rely on it because it's just such a chaotic system. Right. So, you you have you know different movements of air. Like I said, uh, one uh, nuclear detonation, you'll see fallout move in like four different patterns, uh, and it and, and it just it gets the, so the distribution of fallout becomes very complicated when you're looking at how it affects uh, a regional or uh, you know global scenario. Yeah, and our our understanding of fallout in the earlier years um, was modeled after flat terrain, right, where right. all the tests were taking place. So we thought that the fallout would you know, act in a certain way. And then it was only until we started to say, oh, but then there's this whole weather thing and there's geography right. and there's urban environments. Yeah. Cityscapes. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, like the, the city example is pretty cool. Um, in fact, there was a study in, uh, 2009, um, uh, from, uh, the Los Alamos National Laboratory where they, um, they use computer models of cities and, and use fluid dynamic models to see how, um, a large metropolitan area, uh, would tamper with local wind patterns mm-hmm. and uh, um, affect the way fallout is distributed. And you have things like, um, I mean, just uh, cities really mess with with climate anyway. You know, you have like uh, like a sun heated parking lot creates a localized updraft, drawing in air from surrounding areas. And uh, skyscrapers work like artificial mountains. So if a plume of radiated debris were to blow against a tall building, mm-hmm. physicists uh, predict that it that the flow would launch skyward. Uh, in what they call the fountain effect, resulting in a wider distribution of radiated particles. Yeah, I just keep when, whenever I think about the fountain effect, I think of it just like spraying off of the building too. Yeah, right. Like you can just sort of think of it like a motorcycle hitting like a a, a launch ramp. Yeah, where it just launches it straight up in, into the uh, the air. Yeah, and isn't the idea too is to take these mathematical models and then try to use them to to predict real time to people, so that if you were in this sort of situation, that you might be able to communicate uh, with people. I don't know, like via their smartphones, and say, you know, yeah. it's moving in this direction. Take cover, move east. Yeah, um, and just generally be able to plan better for uh, one of these scenarios because um, you know, this is especially relevant. Uh, uh, is, is especially relevant, not just in the use of uh, actual uh, nuclear detonations, but mm-hmm. also in the use of, you know, so-called dirty bombs where you would yeah. have a, you know, a, a standard detonation like a stick of dynamite or C4 spreading radioactive material. So, yeah, I mean, and it does make it not only can you just warn someone, but you can also yourself probably use some of that information and say, okay, so I know that radiation is um, shielded by tall buildings, so I'm mm-hmm. going to get behind this building, and I know the wind is coming this way, and so on and so forth. Um, so I do think it's it's obviously very really helpful. Um, 
And I did want to mention, too, that if you ever just want to scare the pants off of yourself, that you should check out a guy named Bruce Shiner, S-C-H-N-E-I-E-R. And he has a talk on TED.com about how to survive a nuclear attack. And it's really helpful, but it's also just so frightening. I mean, just bring some popcorn and a blanket because you're going to, you know, you're going to want to hide under it. Oh, wow. I'll have, to, I'll have to, I haven't seen that one. I'll have to look at it. Um, I have an old Mutual of Omaha poster somewhere around here that, uh, you know, from back in the 50s that tells you how to survive uh, a nuclear detonation. Is this the turtle? No. There's something, no. like, yeah, there's some, like, um, there's some old film footage that they used to run, uh, particularly, like, in the, in the 40s, right, that mm-hmm. would show, like, the turtle duck and cover. Mm-hmm. And you, it's a, the idea was that you would create a shell for yourself and get as small and, and tiny and um, as possible in order to survive a nuclear attack. Hmm. But that was like the extent of the the instruction. It was <laughs> it was this turtle named Duck and Cover. I remember hearing uh, to the idea of like covering yourself in wet newspapers. I'm not sure where I I picked that one up. Hmm. Possibly from a 1950s sci-fi film. So that might not be, you know. Yeah, yeah, that yeah that may not be. Uh, foolproof there but the bruce schneider is is really interesting because it does he talks a lot about this too um in terms of mathematical models and um, where the wind is blowing and buildings and how all this factors into someone's ability to perhaps survive a nuclear attack it's good times watching well yeah there you go it's uh this is a good podcast because uh, we start with the party and then we end with the the downer, you know. So that's right. I hope that uh, they, you know, if you're listening to this, congratulations because you stayed uh, well past the point where the party ended. That's right. And helped clean up a little. You know? <laughs> so hey, uh, as part of the cleanup and as part of the reward, I guess for uh, making it uh, through the depressing stuff, we do have some listener mail here. Um, let's see. We have a listener by the name of Eric. Uh, I think it's a different Eric than, I don't know, it seemed like we had an Eric in one of them. Oh, yeah, yeah, the, the knocking boots, kicking boots Eric. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's the same Eric, maybe it's a different Eric. Okay, I don't let, know. let me see. Can I see the, oh, it might be the same. I'm it sure. might be? Yeah. Oh, well, uh, now I feel weird like we're giving preferential treatment to our Eric's. But at any rate, Eric writes in uh, with some interesting comments on our placebo podcast. And um, let's see. Um, I'm gonna. It was a nice, long, thoughtful email, but I'm going to uh, skip to the end part, which is a, which is a real cool nugget of uh, thought-provoking uh, material. Uh, he says, uh, Julie said that placebos can't shrink a tumor, but there are cases of this happening, along with spontaneous remission. A lot of the tra- traditional medicine seems to work because, in the vast majority of cases, a sick person will get better no matter what you do, assuming you don't hurt them further. I heard a story that said many Chinese people will bang pots during a solar eclipse to scare away the dragon that is eating the sun. It works perfectly every time, even when the dragon completely swallows the sun, as long as everybody bangs their pots loudly enough, the dragon will always spit it out again. So, it's a, I mean, it's a, you know, a, a very simplified example, but, you know, that is something to keep in mind. I think it's an incredible example yeah. of how we fictionalize our reality, right? Yeah. And that's what was so interesting about finding out about the placebo effect, because, again, it came down to that whole thing, like, do we have to tell ourselves a story? In order to survive, um, or can we just sort of peel away the layers and and um, and not have to trick ourselves into healing? Is it possible on a sort of like evolutionary level that we've been hardwired to do this? Tell ourselves stories. Oh, cool. And um, oh, and then uh, the second part is not actually a um, 
a letter from anybody, but I just wanted to follow up on our Bone Wars uh, oh, podcast yeah. because I forgot to mention um, on, like one particularly cool example that I came across, uh, which is another weird example of um, like life imitating Mortal Kombat or something. Because um, you had this guy uh, by the name, a paleontologist by the name of Gideon Mantell, who named the Iguanodon. Uh, that's his big, uh, 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 you know, contribution. Tr- contribution to paleontology. But uh, in 1838, uh, he, like some of these other guys, he fell into poverty, he had to sell his fossil collection to the British Museum, and uh, he had a long illness and sadly uh, ended up committing suicide in 1852. Um, but weirdly enough, uh, one of his uh, rivals, the guy by the name of Richard Owen, managed to get a hold of uh, Mantell's spine, his pickled spine, after his death. Now, that, I, I don't have the details on that, but how, how does that happen? How do you just, like, how does your spine end up pickled and then in the public market? I don't know. I think that while you're picking up a body, perhaps, to do some experiments on, you just slip that other person 20 bucks and say, hey, can I have that spleen? Yeah. So Owen has Mantel's pickled spine and, and then displays it in his own uh, museum next to his various uh, fossil exhibits, which is pretty brazen and, and kind of insane. I, I would, would love say. to see the label on it. I mean, does it say, like, my nemesis's spine? Yeah. I mean, how does he explain that? Yeah. Or maybe he doesn't, and it's just always his little secret, like, ha, ha, ha. That spine? That's my nemesis. What if he incorporated it into a dinosaur skeleton? That would be kind oh, of interesting. Oh, and speaking of, you saw a Fiji mermaid, yes? I did. I was um, I was out of town, went to this uh, little museum uh, in Louisiana, and they had all these uh, weird uh, freak show things. And they had a, uh, a Fiji mermaid. Now, not necessarily the Fiji mermaid. Right. I don't know. This may have been a very recent um, creation, but it was still interesting to see one. And I also ran, I went to a wedding there, and I ran into somebody who's a fan of the show. So just to let everybody know that if you encounter me at a wedding, uh, you can uh, approach me and talk to me. And uh, and then we'll discuss the show. And then we can run into each other awkwardly throughout the rest of the uh, <laughs> the wedding. So, um, but anyway, but it was great to run into somebody who, uh, to run into a listener. So, yeah. And see the Fiji mermaid. And see the Fiji mermaid. Yes. That's a good weekend, if you ask me. Yeah. So, hey, if you see the Fiji mermaid in reality or in your dreams or, um, or wherever, uh, you can let us know. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. We are Blow the Mind on both of those. And, uh, and I'm very interested to hear, uh, if, you know, if anybody has any, uh, like family history from, uh, from Las Vegas. Uh, in the Nevada oh, yeah. area, like any like personal accounts of what, uh, or maybe not personal accounts, but at least you know, family family uh, tales of what it was like to live in Nevada in the fifties. I'd be we'd be very interested to hear about that, and we you know read your account on the air and all. Unless you're in a witness relocation program, yes, you know the whole the mafia time. Oh yes, the mafia. We, we, we don't want you to. But I guess you could go under Sudan. And you could also uh, send us an email. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And hey, you can send that email to blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. <laughs> 